This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Friday, my name is Jeff Sandu, and I don't think today's MSP is going to come as a surprise to anyone. Last weekend, a rocket went into space to a space nerd like Matt Armitage. That cannot go unmentioned. Today, we are looking at some mainly space-related story and, of course, some zombies. I believe this segment is now called Science is Slick. Yeah, hey Jeff. Now, the world has changed a little bit since the last time we ran this segment, so it felt a little insensitive to continue running it as science is sick, even though we meant sick in terms of being, you know, really cool. Mm, It's not like you to respond to something due to insensitivity. I know. So you can see how seriously I am actually taking this. Um, And of course, it's only a a little tweak, you know, what's a little L between friends. But um, but you're right, you know, we have to talk about that SpaceX launch from last weekend. How jealous were you? Well, admittedly, you know, part of me wanted there to be some kind of, you know, minor technical fail, nothing dangerous. Uh, Listeners may not be aware of one of my latest startups called uh, Space M. (laughs) That sounds very familiar. Well, I thought I wanted, you know, that same sense of brand recognition. So there were, were, if there were rather any issues with SpaceX, then I could simply jump into that void and occupy that space. Uh, Then NASA could just simply swap out the X with an M, job done, everybody happy. Do you actually have a rocket ready? Well, you know, I feel that if we get tied down to the details, I think, too deeply, then people actually miss out on the beauty of the concept. And we do have a fantastic concept. Uh, It's the idea of a, a rocket that carries people and cargo into space and does it very, very safely. And it's a vision that I feel can very much redefine how humanity looks at itself at that kind of universal scale. And we can use that as a launch pad for some of our greatest dreams. In other words, no working rocket, probably not even a drawing on a napkin. But some very, very good words. And in a very real sense, space travel is about words (laughs) and specifically my words. As you can probably hear, Matt has been watching Space Force this week and has learned nothing. How do you really feel? Uh, Okay, I feel amazed, I feel astonished, uh, and I'll qualify that astonished. I'm not astonished that the technology worked, that SpaceX was able to do it, you know, to to send those astronauts into space and dock them with a space station. SpaceX has an incredible track record for a company that is only around 20 years old. I'm always astonished when we launch people into space. I'm always astonished that we can launch people into space because the margin of error is tiny. You know, the the physics is totally stacked up against you. Um, but as usual, you know, I've started the story in the middle. <laughs> yeah, the details that Matt forgot are Elon Musk's SpaceX launch Falcon 8 rocket last Saturday. For the first time, the launch included a Dragon a crew capsule that included two NASA astronauts, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin. And yeah, and after a successful launch and a 19-hour flight to put it into the correct orbit, it was able to dock with the International Space Station and it will remain there for the next kind of few weeks or months, uh, potentially up to 120 days until it brings the crew back to Earth. And there are so many things that are momentous about this. You know, firstly, NASA hasn't had its own astronaut transport since the space shuttle program was shuttered in 2011. And since that time... 
US space crew have actually had to hitch rides on Russian rockets to get up to the ISS. So that's been a little embarrassing. But secondly, this is the first launch of a crewed rocket from a private company that we see heading out to the stars. Mm. And why is this private company aspect so significant? Well, it demonstrates the success of a new culture at NASA. So you mentioned Space Force earlier, and there's a part in the show where Steve Carroll's character is questioned about the cost of items that are taken up into space. And it's one of those nonsensical bureaucracy moments that we do see in real life, you know, where a a two-cent screw suddenly costs $30 for no reason that anyone can, can quite figure out. But it's not an inaccurate portrayal of how these kind of state-owned space agencies, uh, NASA especially, have operated in the past. The private companies that created the actual hardware were guaranteed certain profit margins over and above their costs. And of course, that's a recipe for delays and cost overruns. And that's no longer the case. Well, there's a a great article in The Economist titled uh, Flying People to the Space Station is SpaceX's Biggest Deal Yet. So if you are interested in the kind of economic side of uh, space travel... Which means that you are? Well, you know, I told you that I'm astonished about everything to do with space travel. Uh, The science is mind-boggling enough. But when you add in the levels of engineering that are are necessary, the cost implications of all of the, the, the safety that has to be achieved... It just adds to this incredible feat of human achievement. And let's face it, you know, now is a good time to remind people of their own ingenuity their accom- uh, and their accomplishments as a species. So the piece talks about the change in culture at NASA uh, since, I think, the, the kind of early to mid-noughties, which has really led to the developments of concepts like the Dragon Capsule. So NASA's innovation is driven by accountants? Well, in a certain sense, yes. Um, You know, obviously funding is finite. So the cheaper your rockets and liftoffs are, the more of them that you can actually plan for. That gives you added contingencies. Uh, You can have other rockets lined up nearly ready for, for rescue or resupply missions. And at a simple level, you can do a lot more. So NASA embarked on a new course in the early part of this century, awarding a fixed price rather than fixed profit contracts and opening its tender process to these kind of nimble startups like SpaceX and, of course, Blue Origin, which is owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos. And I guess the argument would be, can these companies be trusted? Well, look at SpaceX. You know, it may be a relative newcomer to the space game, but it's now one of the most commercially successful space companies in the world. And it has had uh, an interesting approach to failure. One of the reasons it's progressed relatively rapidly is that it isn't uh, afraid to try and fail. And each failure has been seen as part of this development. Uh, I don't know if you remember seeing the first uh, first attempts that SpaceX made to land one of its booster rockets on a platform. The booster nearly makes it, but kind of tips off and blows up. So to get to that stage was already amazing. So NASA, up until that time, just threw its launch engines away. Mm. So there was a design aspect to the NASA changes too. Very much so. You know, one of the reasons costs were so high before is that NASA was very specific about what it wanted. So it would give very strict parameters for how rockets and capsules should look, you know, what the dimensions should be, that kind of thing. Under this new NASA 2.0 approach, 
the agency has evolved towards telling bidders what it wants the products to do and leaving them uh, with a lot more room to, to innovate in how things look and how they operate. In SpaceX's case, that means reusable rockets. Obviously, that's going to be much cheaper than the, the kind that you fly once and then throw away, let, you know, just ditch into the sea. Uh, and, of course, a Dragon capsule, a crew capsule full of touchscreens rather than the kind of bare bones panels and buttons that we've been used to seeing, as well as spacesuits designed by Elon Musk himself. Mm. Were you worried about the safety of the astronauts? I think you always worry, you know, you're sending people into space strapped to a rocket. There's no scenario in which that's really safe. But in the context of uh, SpaceX versus NASA, no, I think they have that proven track record. Uh, The Dragon capsule is actually behind schedule. I think it was originally planned for 2015. So they haven't exactly rushed to to get it right. Mm. So where does space go next? Well, this was actually only a demo launch, uh, a public beta, if you like. It was actually called uh, Demo 2. The first official mission will take place in August when Crew 1 takes up, uh, I think, three NASA and one Japanese astronaut. Uh, Beyond the ISS, President Trump has pledged to have uh, US boots on the moon by 2024. Uh, and that's another good reason to to watch the show Space Force. Uh, all sorts of uh, private companies are likely to be involved in that NASA attempt to go back to the moon, though probably not uh, Space M, regrettably. Regrettably for humanity? Uh, regrettably mostly for me and my bank balance. You know, I think I could have contributed some very valuable words. Uh, but uh, in the real world, I think SpaceX, as we know, is pushing forward with uh, Elon Musk's mission to reach Mars. And the tech billionaire with uh, the literally codenamed baby is set on realising his vision of uh, Mars colonies. Uh, when we come back, could the universe be a conscious being? Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Be free, Malaysia. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Welcome back. It is Friday. My name is Jasandu. Together with Matt Amatej, there is a space flavor to this week's show. I'm not sure how we've gotten to this point, but now I want to ask Matt. I have to ask Matt: Is the universe conscious? Now, regular listeners to this show will be no strangers to me posing or getting you to pose very weird <laughs> questions. So. Um, We do like to push at some of the boundaries of the universe on this show. So anyone who would uh, like me to can actually pay for my reasonably priced lecture on why the Earth is flat and sitting on the back of a a giant cat. Uh, I call it the pause of destiny. (laughs) Three years he's had that show and it's been publicly delivered precisely zero times. Because some people are simply not ready for the level of intelligence and vision Uh, that I represent. You know, it's very hard to be unappreciated in your lifetime. Um, Thankfully, you don't have to take my word for this. You know, we've uh, mentioned on the show before that one of the weirdest things about the universe is actually its mathematical uh, predictability. You know, one of the reasons we're able to know so much about what happens in space is because those physical and mathematical laws appear to hold true throughout the universe. It's one of the the reasons that we've had those discussions on the show about whether or not our existence is a computer simulation. 
uh, for example, where you would expect programmed and quite rigid rules to govern uh, behavior and circumstances. Uh, and also because, you know, there's no real reason that the universe should have developed with all of those constants and proofs. Mm. How does that take us to a conscious universe? Well, we actually have to deal with um, two quite difficult topics here. So firstly, that um, mathematics could potentially explain how our own consciousness works. And that's a topic that I think will make some people quite queasy. And that by extension, that may hold lessons for the universe as a whole. So this is one story, obviously, I'm not going to start in the middle. Uh, we've struggled, you know, philosophically to determine consciousness now for thousands of years. Uh, more recently, biology and neuroscience have helped us to understand how the machine of the brain actually works. But that still leaves us with uh, enormous gaps, namely how we translate that neural activity into feelings and expressions. Uh, and that's a, a concept that some philosophers have termed the ghost in the machine. Mm. Why would maths be able to solve it? Okay, it's not an easy answer. Um, about 10 years ago, a neuroscientist called Giulio uh, Tunoni at the University of Wisconsin came up with an idea called integrated information theory. So the idea is actually remarkably simple that a system's consciousness stems from the way that information uh, flows between the various subsystems or subroutines that make up the system. Uh, anyone who wants a, a better explanation than the one I'm about to give can actually check out a piece uh, at New Scientist called uh, Is the Universe Conscious by uh, Michael Brooks. Uh, if you don't want to check that out, then I'm afraid you're going to be stuck with my explanation. <laughs> it's a bit like Matrix. Well, I think you do have to uh, suspend disbelief a little bit to get your head around it. Not in the sense that, um, uh, you know, it, it's unbelievable or not true, but because it challenges the notion that human consciousness is somehow unique. So I'll use the example that the new scientist gives. Uh, you can think of consciousness as a map of interconnected islands. What connects those islands is information, um, data, I guess, if you want to be very matrixy about it. So Tunoni's argument was that information flow had to be complex enough to make those islands interdependent. So therefore, changing the information flow to or from any one of those islands will affect both the state and the information output of other islands within that that system. So I think this is possibly the bit that some people won't like um, because it allows you to look at the output of information and assign that particular uh, subsystem with a value. And that helps you to calculate the degree of consciousness that's kind of manifest in the system overall. Mm -hmm. That sounds surprisingly simple. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the devil is in the details. So um, they call those, those calculations, those figures that they assign, they call them a, a phi. But because of the complexity of the human brain, it would take pretty much the rest of eternity to use the model to actually put a value on uh, the consciousness level of a single human brain. So... Uh, IIT has been dismissed as largely unusable by many mathematicians and neuroscientists as well as philosophers, not least because the actual final value of this phi would have to be greater than the sum of its parts uh, to indicate the kind of consciousness that we enjoy. Um, so it is actually very pro 
problematic. Mm, but there is a but. Well, look, some researchers have tried to refine and simplify the model. Uh, that could allow competitor theories to IIT to emerge. Uh, researchers Scott uh, Aronson and Johannes Kleiner uh, published a preprint paper in February that um, goes some of the way to, to refining that model. What's uh, interesting or you know, problematic, depending on your point of view, is that this simplification may support another theory called panpsychism that holds that consciousness is a fundamental property of all matter. Uh, not in the sense that, you know, an individual electron is thinking and feeling, but that it might explain that um, there's that, that sliding scale of consciousness that we see in the material world from, you know, a, a, a nematode to an orangutan to human beings to you know beings like me mm, i knew there needed to be some nonsense in there somewhere well obviously you know you have to include a, a quantum consciousness like mine that is playing four-dimensional chess with chewbacca while still doing this radio show so uh it could also play um not that i want to make this any more mind-bending into that idea of matter being in different states until we observe it and then it's forced to take a, a, a take a definable course. So um, I hope I explained that correctly. So it's the the idea of a participatory universe. We've had trouble defining within that model um, what actually caused the collapsing of matter before there was a human consciousness to to observe or cause it to collapse into that state. This model at least adds a mathematical consistency to explain why things happened before human consciousness developed. Mm. Is there still something missing? Uh, nice question, and I have to point out that I'm not mathematically capable of answering it, even with my quantum intelligence. Uh, so, yes, there are shortcomings. Um, you know, how I perceive the taste of cinnamon compared to the way that you uh, perceive it, you know, it, it might be slightly ineffable. You may not be able to make that um, objectively uh, compar comparable, uh, especially as my opinion is obviously the correct one. But researchers like Kleiner do think that maths may offer a path to help philosophers, neuroscientists and astrophysic uh, astrophysicists rather better understand our consciousness and our observable universe. Mm. It feels like you've fallen into a mental black hole during that story. And I've got a feeling that our next item isn't going to help much. Well, we know that black holes are very weird. So um, the one uh, that we got those fascinating pictures of last year was extremely large. So we think, or we know rather, that many black holes emit very little radiation, which makes detecting them extremely difficult. So people have long had these late night debates about what happens when you fall into a black hole. Mm, I don't know who you hang out with, but what happens when you do <laughs> fall into a black hole? Well, obviously you get the flying spaghetti monster. Um, quite literally, you get this, this process called spaghettification. Uh, every part of you would be stretched out, kind of ribbon-like, even the, the, the very molecules inside you. So hence you get that spaghetti reference. And that's where the size of the, the black hole is really relevant. That's where that, that comes in. Mm, bigger is better. Well, if you were to be sucked into one, then uh, relatively, yes. Uh, those stretching forces, which are known as tidal forces, 
are not thought to weaken according to the size of the black hole. And that means, uh, according to a piece by Chris Impey, again in New Scientist, that if you fell into a black hole that was about a thousand times the size of our sun, it's mathematically plausible that you could survive. So there's a lot of mathematical plausibility in today's show. Well, you know, I'm open to all kinds of human experimentation. So if you want to commit to testing the theory, I'm absolutely fine with that. But apparently at the point that you reach the black hole's event horizon, which is where it starts to warp space-time, observable time would slow. So... uh, If you, Jeff, were trying to leap into that black hole, we would see Jeff as though he was frozen on the edge of getting sucked into the black hole. Although you, as Jeff, who is uh, experiencing a different perception of the time that we're observing, would be sucked beyond that event horizon and into the hole itself. And and what do I do if I survive? Well, you could help us figure out what happens to matter and information inside a black hole. Uh, Does it get torn apart? Does it simply disappear, which uh, some scientists have postulated? There are a lot of gaps in the standard model of physics that uh, you could help to clear up just by being there. Now, of course, we also know that information can't come back from a black hole, so it is trapped. So we wouldn't be able to find out what you know But you would have the satisfaction of knowing that you'd solved some of the greatest questions in the entire universe. Mm, At least I didn't get torn into spaghetti. That's progress. Uh, Where do we go from black hole habitats? Uh, Last year, there were terrible wildfires that raged across the Arctic. So normally you expect those fires to die down as the weather gets colder and the snow and the ice settle in. So zombie fires... uh, are actually a thing. Uh, They're the fires that smolder away in those icy conditions and then re-emerge following the the thaw and the warmer weather in the spring. So recent satellite images have shown a proliferation of uh, these zombie fires in Russia's Arctic and Siberian regions, uh, especially in very kind of peat-rich areas. And they're also becoming a lot more common in places like Alaska, uh, where they kind of more routinely get discovered through the winter by people like uh, hunters and uh, other travelers, and they get reported to the, the fire service and dealt with. So at the moment, it's just a suggestion that these are, are zombie fires. It is actually possible that the fires were set by people deliberately, uh, you know, for land clearing or other purposes. And as the areas are are very lightly populated, it would actually take someone to report from the ground to really determine the cause. Will the fires just burn themselves out? Well, there's a a risk that the fires will act as literal fuel for this year's fire season. Uh, The longer they burn, the more risk they pose to, obviously, the permafrost. Billions of tonnes of carbon are stored in the Arctic's frozen peatland. Uh, Last year's fires are estimated to have released about 50 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We've talked about the potential air pollution and greenhouse gas effect that we've seen over the uh, past few months due to the economic slowdown caused by the coronavirus. Uh, We've seen those emissions coming down, but that would probably be more than offset by those Arctic fire emissions over the summer. Uh, And because of the economic slowdown, of course, in those Arctic regions in Russia, uh, coupled with uh, the country's economy that's reliant on kind of oil and gas sales, we've 
also seen you know this falling demand for those goods we've seen lower prices so it actually makes it a lot more difficult for local authorities to control and deal with those fires and outbreaks as they occur so yes the season finale of the walking dead may have been uh, postponed indefinitely but these zombies may be coming to get us uh, one way or another nevertheless there you go we started talking about rockets and we ended with zombies another episode of msp you can download the podcast now available on the bfm website or the bfm app uh we'll be back next week bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station